Okay, so here we are again for another Crash of the Cargill podcast. And today uh, I'm talking, I am talking to Tess Trotter, who is the leader. I think that's your title, is that right? Yeah, yeah kia ora, Steve. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we always say it slightly awkwardly like that. You got it bang on. <laughs> cool. The uh, leader of the Valley Project. Um, so we're going to find out about the Valley Project and about Tess and what she does and what it does and uh, why Crush the Cable raises money for it. All right. So Tess. Hi. 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 Kia ora. So tell me about yourself, Tess. Uh, sure. So um, I'm a woman <laughs> and, I and a mum and I live in Northeast Valley, um, one of the most wonderful places in the world. Um, mm. I won't I won't bother telling you how old I am, but I'm not young anymore. Um, and I'm really fortunate to have a job yeah. that I absolutely love. Um, uh, no, not quite, but you know, okay. it's all yeah. relative, Steve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry, back to you, Joel. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, I just feel so lucky. I, I work at the Valley Project 30 hours a week, um, but it is my life, I think it's probably fair to say, alongside my wonderful family and especially my darling daughter who is staring at me lovingly as I speak. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm a Dunedin Knight. I, I was um, born and, and grew up here, um, ran away for a while, as you do, um, and I'm so grateful that I had the wisdom to come back. Yeah. So did you grow up in the valley? Uh, sort of. I actually um, grew up in Sawyer's Bay and um, our family home burnt down when I was about 10 or 11 years old and we moved to the valley at that point. So for me, I feel like a lot of my formative years have definitely been valley based. Um, I went to Logan Park High School and I guess a lot of my my friends or that that kind of wider whanau that you have are valley people. Um, so it feels like my space my place now yeah and it's not far from Sawyer's Bay you can whip over the hill pretty quickly if you try yeah it's almost a local I mean Sawyer's Bay could almost get the Valley Boys couldn't they yeah 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 um if if they didn't have the Rothstay News um which I do remember reading um with keen interest even as a little kid because I've always been a bit geeky like that cool or nosy perhaps <laughs> so was it like what what is that Oh, the Rostay News. It's yeah. it's a it's the Valley Voice of the West Harbour. Um, obviously, going... nowhere near as cool, but you know. Oh. But it's been going since you were a kid. Yes, it has. Yeah, yeah. It's been going for a long time. Yeah. Huh, cool. Yeah, it's pretty neat, eh? Yeah. yeah. So when you say you're geeky, does that mean you're into community stuff way back then? Yeah, I guess so. Like, I mean, I guess when you're when you're young, you don't necessarily frame it that way. Um, I guess I've always been a real people person. I've always been a bit of an um, advocate for the underdog. Maybe I've felt like a bit of an underdog too. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I've always been, even from a young age, being that person that kind of brings together. I was always the host, you know, if, if um, friends were getting together, it was always at my place. And um, I've always really enjoyed... Um, meeting people from all different sorts of walks of life as well. Um, I had such an eagerness to travel. Um, one of the really big influences on my life was a three-month um, backpacking trip through India. Um, I turned 16 in Jaipur in India, and it was um, wow. that's a hugely formative experience, I think, um, 
taking you your way from that teenage angst and throwing you into somewhere where every sense is assaulted. Um, yet you see people in abject poverty with huge smiles on their faces and colourful clothing and I think it really um, changed my perspective of things and, and gave me a real realisation of how bloody lucky I was myself. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, did you do that on your own? Oh, no. <laughs> no, no um, oh, it's, it's a kind of hilarious story, Steve. My... Um, my mum, my pe my folks had split up and my mum had gone and done some travelling and she'd landed in India and um, met a, a very young, handsome Indian man who proposed to her, which of course was is pretty controversial <laughs> in of itself. A divorcee white woman, 20 years senior and all that. Whoa. And so my brother and I um, flew to Calcutta um, for, for our mother's wedding and um, we travelled with her and, and this guy for a while on very shoestring budget. It wasn't kind of fancy styles. It was third class carriages on the trains. Yeah. And, um, and un, you know, unsurprisingly, at a certain point in the trip, my mum realised that maybe marrying a 22-year-old Indian bloke wasn't the best plan she'd ever come up with. <laughs> and so the second half of our trip was actually literally running across India away from this poor man. <laughs> I know, I know. And we would go places and, and people, we'd go to book into a wee backpackers or something and, and the people would say, oh, I've seen you before. A man was here with your photograph. And so we'd get it onto the next train and off to the next spot. It was pretty crazy times. <laughs> eh? Yeah. And it was interesting too because was, I was 15. My brother was 11 or 12 and my mum and it was this is in the 90s so my brother had the Hanson haircut you know the sort of long blonde bob oh, yeah. and so as we traveled um people assumed we were three women traveling alone together like three <laughs> friends because my mum's very young and youthful and beautiful and um so we attracted a lot of attention because of that and I will never forget the day we were in Delhi and my mum was like right that's it because she was feeling kind of paranoid and understandably weird stuff was happening and um and it's India. It's all kind of crazy. And um, my mum dragged my brother out onto the street um, where there was a, you know, barber on the side of the street and got him to shave all his hair off so that we had a man in our party. And it was interesting because it, although he was very young, um, we, were, we actually, um, it, it changed the context of the travel for us, um, having a man. Yeah. in our group um albeit an 11 year old <laughs> little boy um yeah yeah um but just such a time of discovery you know I remember I um my homework from high school was to write a journal over the course of the trip and I did and I really enjoyed doing that and um I had to hand it in when I got back and then I remember my English teacher, I think it was, read it. And then she said, oh, would you mind if I passed it on to so-and-so? And before I knew it, every single bloody teacher at my high school would read my innermost teenage angsty Indian thoughts. Wow. Um, but they were impressed, you know. And, and, and back then, I just was like, shame. But now I realize that it must have been quite a fascinating read, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, possibly. I don't know if it's quite that that far, but um, would have certainly been interesting. And we had some great adventures, and I certainly saw the world in an incredibly different way on my return. Yeah. How many people go to India to find themselves, eh? The Beatles did it. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because it sounds so cliched, but I guess yeah. when you're that young, you're, you're not aware that that's a cliche almost, you know? And yeah. I even remember, like, I had the Lonely Planet Guide to India, and I remember reading it religiously. Like, we would we would use it. I mean, the internet wasn't a thing, so that's what we used to find accommodation or to find some kai or whatever. Yeah. But I also remember just reading it over and over in every place that we were, reading about where we were because I thought that these writers were these sort of uber cool um 20 something year old travelers and I just wanted to soak up you know I wanted to emulate it I guess you know um yeah (laughs) funny thing eh but I think um I don't know have you ever been to India Steve no I haven't I've been to Southeast Asia but haven't been to South Asia right yeah I mean I think a lot of places like that it's really hard to describe until you've been in in a place like that um where everything is so incredibly different and it pulls on your emotions and and you know even physically it's challenging to be hot and sweaty and walking for miles and getting horrible mosquito bites or taking anti-malarial drugs i'll never forget how awful they were to vomit up <laughs> when you had a funny tummy <laughs> yeah. I remember competing with my brother for ends of a squatting toilet <laughs> we had, oh. had, a, had a tummy bug at one point yeah oh, yeah belly belly. Yeah. yeah yeah big time yeah um we should have probably been more careful I don't know um oh, I don't know yeah. I, I um we lived in Cambodia for seven years and the you know I was pretty slack and I only got it once and it was um after I had a mango and it was I, I was in the countryside and uh saw this guy chopping up his chicken wiping a knife on his bum and then <laughs> my mango and thought well I could just not eat it but you know I've been safe all this time and oh, yeah yeah you know that was dangerous <laughs> you know the thing that actually really got us the sickest we ever got was one time we were in Varanasi I think it was and we came across a little shop that had like an ice block freezer and and we hadn't seen anything like that for a long time and then we had had fantasies about just eating potatoes and stuff you know and um and we begged our mum to buy us one of these um sort of like an ice block but an ice cream based one Oh, yeah. And I remember eating it, and as I was eating it, I felt a bit funny, but I was so into the idea of it, I ate it, and yeah, that was the thing that got us, and I think what it was is they'd been defrosted and refrozen or something like that. Yeah, yeah. always stick with the local food, hey? Like, yeah, the busiest, dirtiest little spot is always the one to eat at. Oh, yeah, in Cambodia, they used to use um, dirty water to make ice, though. Yeah, yeah, that too, Yeah. And my mum was pretty tight, so yeah, we were quite rationed on toilet paper and bottled water when we were in India. Um, I remember having huge fights with them. Don't they have the bum guns for um, your toileting? Yeah, they do, they do, but we were quite um, resistant to that, Mm. and she wasn't very impressed by that. So um, it got to a point, I think a few weeks in, um, if we wanted toilet paper, we had to use our own spending money. And I remember I had exactly 100 US dollars that my stepmother had given me for the trip. And so I had to ration it very, very carefully. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of very desirable things that you want <laughs> when you're a teenage girl. The pretty jewels and beautiful saris and, mm. yeah. and, and phone calls home. I think I probably spent half my money just 
ringing people every now and then just to try and tell someone what I was going through and what I was seeing. Hmm. So how did that, like, how did that change you when you got back? What did you get up to then? Well, I was a pretty rebellious teenager, to be honest. I wasn't, um, it wasn't pure bad, but, but I was very self-indulging, I guess. And, and I genuinely thought I was pretty bloody onto it. And I think the experience of India just really opened my eyes to all the things I didn't know. Mm. Um, I think it made me really see what poverty truly is. I mean, I, I grew up with a solo dad on the DPB, so we never had much money, but we were sweet, you know? Yeah. And then going somewhere like that and meeting people, I remember we were in Udapur and I met a guy around the same age as me. He was a rickshaw driver and he, he used to blast out um, the Barbie girl song. And for some reason I ended up going for a walk with him down by the lake. It was terribly romantic at the time. And he was telling me how his dream, his, his big dream in life was to have a photograph printed of himself. And I think it's just things like that, that you, you suddenly realize everything that you've had and what you take for granted. Um, but also, I guess that everybody, everybody deserves to be able to reach for their dreams, you know? Yeah. And I remember talking to this guy and he genuinely didn't think that was ever going to happen for him. I mean, I think partly he wanted me to take a photo of him and send it back to him, you know, but um, yeah, something so small like that to aspire to. Um, and yeah, and, and just realizing, um, I guess a, a little bit of it was the insight of seeing what colonialism had done in India as well. Um, the, the weird contradiction of things being so terribly Indian and having, you know, tens of different languages spoken yet you go into a train station and, and it's so bloody British and and I had, guess I hadn't really thought in real terms about that sort of stuff before you know I'd studied civil rights and history in high school and that kind of thing but it really grounds it in reality um yeah and, and you realize how lucky you are and, and for me it just it gave me a really strong desire to want to help people i guess um is is kind of lame as it might sound yeah so when you came back did you like did you train in something or... um no not really um so i came back and I finished off high school um and i i had a real I've always had a real interest in media and communications as well um oh, yeah. I had a bit of a dream of being you know like a documentary maker or, or something like that um so that's what I went off to do at university um study film and media yeah. but it didn't really work out for me had a lot of other stuff going on in my life um I've, I've got a younger brother who I've always sort of taken care of and he was flatting with me when I was at uni and I worked three jobs and I just got to a point one day where I just um, felt pretty trapped here and, and I just had this overwhelming desire to leave and go back to India, actually, funnily enough. Um, that was a huge drive for me. So I, um, I packed up and I moved to Melbourne and um, uh, to work and save money with my best mate. And um, about 12 months in, I um, fell in love with an Indian boy. <laughs> and... Um, and he wasn't too keen to go back to India. He was pretty stoked about being in Australia. Um, and so that kind of put the put page to that. And eventually we moved back here to New Zealand together um, after a few years. Yeah. Hmm. 
Funny, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny what happens. But um, yeah, we came back to New Zealand and we lived in Wellington for about five or six years and then um, kind of came to the crunch point where his family were like, that's it, you're getting married. And he said, I'm going to marry this chick. And they said, no way. And within a month, he was back in India and married to in an arranged marriage. Really? Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. We're still really, really good friends. Um, he had a rough time and his wife too in the beginning, but um, they're, they're some of my best friends now. Um, and it was really fortunate for me because it made me realise that it was probably time to come back home and, and finish my degree and um, come up with a bit of a plan for life. I'd been working in project management, um, doing facilities stuff, nothing that um, inspired me at all, but it was very stressful work. Um, I'm glad that I've had that experience. I got a lot of really good training and, and working in a large organization where you really get a feel for the mechanics of bureaucracy and all of that stuff, but it wasn't for me. Um, and so I guess that, that whole situation really made me click into, you know, what am I doing with my life? I'm getting towards the end of my twenties now and it's time to follow some dreams and get qualified and go home. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> So, did you meet his wife after they married? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, she, I think she came over, took about six months for until she could come. Um, and it was really a horrible situation, I guess, because um, neither of them were particularly happy, I suppose. Um, but it's interesting um, how things work out because I... Um, you know, we've got such enormously different backgrounds, yet we have so much in common, her and I, like, um, on a really kind of deep level, we're, we're incredibly similar, um, which is, is kind of ironic, you know, um, and, um, yeah, I've just realized I really shouldn't have told this whole story, because she actually has no idea that we used to be in a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things, it's, a, it's an unsaid, I think that's a really um, common cultural thing with a lot of Indian families where we all pretend that something never happened when actually we all kind of know it did. Um, yeah, but um, it, it, the, the story we go with is that she, um, that, that, that we were good friends and flatmates and um, that kind of explains most of it. Um, and it's, I guess it's just a, yeah, exactly. And it's a protective thing, um, I suppose. Yeah. But I think she knows and she's a wonderful person and, um, I probably talk more to her now than I do to him, to be fair. Yeah. So, so they're an arranged marriage that's worked. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's, it's not perfect all the time. Um, but there's, there's a lot that, um, drives people to make those things work. What was that? Sorry. As opposed to what marriage? <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, you know, one thing I've really learned, like knowing them, is just how much effort goes into arranging those marriages um, and then how much effort people make to make it work. You know, the, the, um, the running away option is, is or, or, you know, the separating option is very rarely used. Um, and... I think it just goes to show, I mean, I'm a total romantic, don't get me wrong. I married, I ended up marrying my high school sweetheart, who was my first ever boyfriend. But yeah. I also think that knowing where someone's coming from, being part of a wider whanau, um, 
building things together and negotiation are all really critical things for relationships. And I think it's like that, whether it's um, a marriage or a friendship or even within community, you know, um, it is that sense of um, some universal knowing about where people come from and what, what their norms are and um, some trust and um in flexibility and negotiation you know you, you have to be open to difference as well as celebrate your similarities yeah oh cool hmm. there, yeah. yeah okay so um moving on to you mentioned your high school sweetheart are you allowed to mention his name <laughs> yes yeah yep so so sam mcmullen my husband um we we met. Uh, I think I was fourteen at the time, and um, yeah, I was kind of pretty into him for a long, long time. And after I um, broke up with Surrey, I came down to Dunedin for a, a good friend's wedding, and Sam was there. And next minute, I was moving back to Dunedin. Oh, sweet! <laughs> I know, I know. Yep. And then we went and had a child and got married and all of those crazy things that I thought I probably wouldn't do because I'd be too busy traveling the world with my film camera crew. <laughs> you can travel the world in North East Valley. Yes, you can actually. And yeah. you know, it's interesting because I guess I've always had a bit of a drive to do more travel. I, 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 you know, set off on this journey to go back to India and never quite made it. Um, but in recent years, um, you know, over the last few years, I've sort of thought, oh, when am I going to achieve those goals? You know, when, when, when's that going to happen for me now? And the last couple of years, I've just realized that I don't want that anymore. Um, I, I honestly feel like I've found the best spot there is to be here. Um, and um, I just, I feel incredibly lucky to be here. And I also just feel morally in terms of um, what's happening with our, with our climate and our world. Yeah. I just I just don't know that I could be indulgent enough to to fly on a plane just to do that anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've I've changed on that one too because mm. you know, having lived and worked overseas and recognizing yeah. that it's really good that some people get to do that and have that experience and we are we need to be connected. But, mm. So I just don't want to do it anymore because of partly because of the um, the cost. Yeah, 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 yeah. and and it, it's a big cost now, you know. And I guess I also think like um, one day I'd love to think that my daughter could go somewhere and see somewhere else. You know, yeah. she's got a very strong desire to go to Australia to see an Egyptian um, traveling exhibition at the museum there next yeah. year. Yeah. And I kind of feel like now, like there's only so many trips that's fear for any one family yeah. to take. And so I'm kind of want to yeah, hold out for her to have her opportunity. You know, I was very lucky. I got to travel around India at 15 years old and um, yeah, I'll, I'll save it up for that. I think, you know, yeah. if anything. How old's your daughter? She's just turned eight last right. weekend. Right. Yeah. So she's not going to run off to India to find herself just yet. Not just yet. No, no. But she is very precocious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so you live in the valley, and we should probably say the valley is the you know the most important valley in the world, Northeast Valley, um, at the foot of Mount Cargill. With uh, the valley is formed by Lindsay Creek, which drains off. Mount Cargill. Mm -hmm. Can you also yep. only say to sell that? 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one thing that I always think is really important is, is because we're talking about the valley and Northeast Valley, for me, the valley is, um, it's all those hills around as well. I think of people up at the top of the hill, up Mount Cargo and Upper Junction, Opoho, Pine Hill, all of those areas, that to me is the, is the valley. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's, it is our, our place, you know, I think the people here have a very, very strong connection to the, to the ground and, and the trees and the, and the creek and the mountains. But I also think that um, it encompasses others as well. Like if we're thinking about our community, I kind of like to think of it as anybody that lives, works or plays um, in this place. Um, that's kind of, yeah, in a nutshell, what I think of is the valley yeah, cool. it's funny actually because I, I grew up in northeast valley but i never appreciated it as as such as i do now when you mm. look out and you see you always see the hills you always see the um especially in you know going up the valley there's one road there's one creek and uh so it's like the artery mm. of the valley. everyone has to go up and down via that way even though now i live in pine hill there's still one road. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think I think um, the geography of the place is part of what makes it feel safe and secure. Yeah. Um, there is something about that particular geography. It's so different, you know. Like if you think compared to South Dunedin, where you don't have the same kind of um, enclosure um, that you do here. Um, I think it gives a real sense of, of safety and security for people in a way, even if you're mm. not conscious of it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, just talking to you now, I'm looking up onto um, Pine Hill and looking at all the trees and the beautiful colors and just gives me that sense of, oh, and I, I mean, I grew up on a farmlet and my, my father, grew up on a farm and so seeing the sheep on on in the paddocks and that kind of thing is really familiar and and yeah. secure for me too yeah, yeah. i guess i love that we're so close to town and we've got amazing little cafes and lots of really interesting and creative people yeah. but we've still got sheep barring on the hill you know yeah yeah, yeah that's true <laughs> Yeah. I remember when my daughter was really young, sometimes I would be outside and I'd hear the lambs and I'd think it was her crying in her bed and I'd run in to check and then there was no sound and I'd go back outside and I'd hear it again and, it would, you know, I was a sleepless mum, kind of twigging out a little bit and you know, go, oh, it's the lambs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that when I was a kid and it depended on the way the wind was blowing as to how mm. you could hear them. Yes, yep, absolutely. Yeah. So how long have you been involved with the project? Um, well, I've, I've been working at the project for, um, oh gosh, it'll be coming up two years in June. Um, but I've had, I've dipped in and out with some involvement in the past. Um, I moved back to the Valley in 2010. Um, and I didn't really notice a huge amount um, of the stuff happening with the project, I guess, until I became a mum. I think that really shifts your radar a bit um, and so I've dipped in and out um, I'm really fortunate that I've had friends that have been involved working or volunteering with the project um, and then I sort of came on board um, a few years ago now I think for one of the creek fests um, and, and a couple of other bits and pieces yeah and then um, 
after that, I was I was working in a role for the Dunedin Curtain Bank, and so developed quite a good um, professional relationship with my colleague now Charlotte around healthy homes stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess my time at the Curtain Bank, um, I really enjoyed that, and it was a really great thing to do. But it was just such a tiny sliver. You meet people coming through the door who have really complex situations in their lives, um, often quite challenging. Um, complex situations and you know providing some curtains is, is one great step but it just made me realize that um, it's, it's not enough you have to treat people holistically you know yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, I found that quite challenging I guess and so when the opportunity um, at the Valley Project came up um, I'll be honest it frightened me a little bit um, I knew it was going to be a big job mm-hmm. um, but it was also just such an amazing opportunity. Um, and I guess the other thing for me, the, the real motivation is for a, a few years, my mum um, has been looking at and thinking about and reading about climate change for a very long time. And oftentimes she would come and sort of rant at me about the latest evidence about the ice caps or, or whatever it was. And I'd find it really stressful because she'd just sort of go on and on and, and keep looking at me like she was, waiting for me to give her an answer and I didn't have the answer and I was sort of at that point of like what the fuck am I meant to do you know like what do you want from me I can't solve all of this yeah and then I just realized one day but I I, it sounds so obvious now but it was a conscious change of thinking where I suddenly realized hey I can do something I can do something in my home Yes. And then I can influence a little bit outside of that. And actually, I'm living in this resilient community. And it's so empowering to start thinking that way, thinking about what you can do rather than what the problem is. And for me, that's a lot of what the Valley Project is all about. It's working in that empowerment space. It's highlighting people's strengths. It's getting in behind, supporting people. Um, Yes, um, we have had times where we've dipped into crisis mode and we've needed to be there and back people up for sure. But there is something incredibly empowering and beautiful about being able to focus on the positive. And I guess we're just very lucky that um, we're not alone. So there are other agencies and other organizations out there in the world that do a lot of that crisis stuff, which means there is space for organizations like ours to, um, to harness the positive. And, and, and I think it takes both, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, you you say it's obvious, um, but for a lot of people, it's not, we get, we get told the big picture all the time Mm, mm. and everything And, and the big picture's there. And, um, but we're not left with what can we do, make it, how can we make a difference in our own little sphere and, and how important that is. Because if everyone mm. makes a difference in their sphere, that's what changes the big picture. That's it. And I think sometimes those little changes that people can make, it's so focused on a capitalist perspective, you know, like yeah. it's, it's about how you consume and of yeah. course how you consume and has a huge impact on all of this stuff. Yeah. But there's other things that people can do too. It's not just about what kind of toilet paper you choose to buy, you know, like yeah. there's a whole lot of people in the world that can only buy the budget brand, but you know what? There's so many other amazing things that they can do with their time or the energy or their thoughts or their creativity. and it's pretty magical to have an actual paid job 
to support those people, you know, <laughs> like I just can't quite believe how lucky I am. Yeah. Yeah. So we probably we probably need to talk a bit more about what the Valley Project is and what it does. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know that's what Crush the Cargill raises funds for. Oh yeah, and and we should point out that if anyone is wondering what little thing they can do, they can donate to. Yes, the yes, the they can. That yep. goes the Valley <laughs> so right. So, so what do we project. do? Um. So I guess in essence, to begin with, what it is is around community-led development. And so that can be quite a, a slow burn process at times, but it's about harnessing the strengths and assets within a community in our case, um, and um, having a really open consultative process or processes where you identify what the aspirations and the challenges are and, and your mahi is in supporting people to achieve the change they want. So it's, it's not a top-down situation. It's, it's literally about harnessing people's ideas and um, working with them. Mm. And I guess for us, there's, there's a few key themes that, that are pretty constant in that. Um, one big part of it is just a social well-being, connecting people together, creating spaces of all sorts um, we call them bumping spaces and of course I've been reflecting on that quite a bit in our new COVID world um, but you know but supporting social cohesion whether it's an interest group that's supported to get together whether it's a, a large community event with a diversity of entertainment that brings lots of different people together um, or whether it's telling stories that make people have a sense of connection with one another I think that's, that's kind of at the heart of what we do. And I think um, over this COVID time, I've really reflected a lot on the Valley Voice, which is a monthly magazine that we produce um, and is distributed to every household and business in the Valley area. And um, it's, it's an expensive endeavor at time to do that kind of printing and that sort of thing. But more and more, I realize how that is a great connector. It's an equalizer amongst people. Everybody gets it. You don't have to be online. You don't have to pay any money. Um, that's something that's going to come to you and provide an opportunity for connection. Mm. Um, there's a few other key things. Um, I mentioned about housing before. Um, if anyone knows the Valley, they'll know that um, we're in Dunedin, so we're already down there in terms of the state of our housing stock. But in the valley, especially on the valley floor in particular, there is some really poor housing stock. Um, and of course, um, often it's people that are more vulnerable that end up in less desirable homes. Um, so that's something that's not going away anytime soon and we have to keep chipping away at it. Um, and it, it keeps rising up again. We're very lucky. Um, our community worker, Charlotte, has been working in that space for a long time and she's incredibly pragmatic and practical. Um, we're not talking about how do we fix housing by retrofitting everyone's house with double glazing because it's not, I mean, I'd love to do that, but it's not possible. But what we can do is show people how to roll up a towel and put it in front of the door to stop a draft, you know? So it's about working on a really practical level but also, um, and this is something we're working on more and more now, on a bigger advocacy level as well, one of the advantages of having staff in an organisation like the Valley Project is being able to 
use some time to advocate, to work with council, for example, or other organisations, or, or write letters and that kind of thing, to keep on highlighting the issues that people are facing. Mm. Um, so that's that's always been a big one for us. Um, and at the moment, we've um, pivoted to online. So we're doing a, a, a small series through autumn of Facebook Live events, talking about some of that stuff with um, with Charlotte, who's on our staff, but also some people from um, the wider community who have expertise that can help guide people and try and connect them to things that might help. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is the environment. Um, what I've learned with the environment, so we, we, um, we host a project called the Open Urban Valley Eco Sanctuary, and it has a vision to see the kaka from Orokanui, um come through the valley as a, as a safe corridor um, for the birds to expand into wider Dunedin. And that's very multifaceted from planting trees to education and schools and all sorts. But the thing I find really interesting about it that's um, really struck home for me in the last year or so is caring for our environment has now become mainstream's not the right word, but it's a great connector for the young and the old, for the haves and the have nots. It's something that many people appreciate and desire on many different levels. Yeah, so actually sides of the political spectrum now too, which is kind of Exactly. Yep, exactly. And so it's actually if we think about trying to create a um cohesive kind of society in, in a um a place where people have common understanding, I actually think through some of the environmental projects that um we've hosted and, and done, we're actually seeing that. We're seeing people that may not have known each other before come together over weeding around the flaxes at Chingford or um, their, their desire to, we've started a little um, propagation nursery and you have different people collecting seed or seedlings from the bush or from their homes and connecting with other people. Um, I've noticed it particularly intergenerationals um you know you, you've got um we've got some real eco warriors at our local primary school but we equally have some phenomenal people in their 80s who are still driving that, that kopapa really strongly um and that's an incredibly beautiful common ground for people to have i think um and i think more and more we're going to see that being one of the primary drivers of a lot of the mahi we do and and it's sort of embedded in so many things i guess it's around sustainability as well we um support the valley community workspace um which is um located in a building that's um owned by the valley project and it's a a group of um a collective i guess you could say of people running not-for-profits and small businesses with a sustainability kaupapa. Um, and so I guess that environmental stuff, it, it, it has many facets to it. It's not just about planting a kofi. It's, it's all of the different things that we can do to nourish our environment and appreciate it and protect it into the future. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I guess the other, the other thing that I would say is probably our other key kind of constant um because many things change too um is around food resiliency um there are some incredible people in our community we have um the northeast valley community gardens has just celebrated its ninth year um in march um you've got a huge variety of people there producing 
um, some phenomenal food, um, which is really well supported by um, the Northeast Valley Normal School as well. There's also a community garden in Delmore, um, and we have things like the community orchards where um, fruit and nut trees have been planted around the community. Um, we've got people really interested in seed sharing, that kind of thing. And that's been going for quite a while, but it's really coming into its own now. It is, it is rising up as something that is incredibly important to people um, at the moment. And I mean, I guess that's the irony of the whole COVID thing is all of a sudden the stuff about local and resiliency and, and these things that we've been kind of um, pushing at for a long time, all of a sudden overnight people are into it, you know, um, people that have never thought about it before are suddenly like, oh, yikes, how do we make this better? Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating actually because, you know, people are meeting their neighbours, people are planting their own veggies, people are actually going for walks in the neighbourhood and things. Mm, mm, and, um, mm. I, was just, I was just thinking, connecting, how you, you mentioned the word holism before, when you're working in um, a curtain bank and you, you're, you're struggling to find a holistic and you recognize the need for it mm. and um and uh how you talked about the environment work connecting mm. people so it's a social work as well as a environmental work and uh yeah and food and um you know warm houses and all of these things it was, that's it yeah, yeah yeah and creativity too i think um yeah. we can't underestimate um you know the the opportunity for, for people to have some creative outlets but also the appreciation that others have um when they when they observe that you know um i think that's really beautiful and i think again it's one of those things that can connect different types of people that might not have thought they had much in common sometimes yeah yeah, yeah. um i don't think you mentioned the community rooms <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. So um, we're also very, very fortunate that we, um, oh, I guess what's the word? I, we um, we facilitate and, and look after um, a community space. Um, so that's um, a couple of different rooms um, down by Northeast Valley School. So we're, our offices are there and we have a reception where we have some different services that we provide for people. Um, more often than not, it's answering questions or helping connect people with this or that or um, taking on any ideas they had. But we do printing. We have a hot desk for people to use Wi-Fi and that sort of thing as well. And also just cup of tea opportunity anytime. Um, and then there's rooms as well that people book. So there's a, a hugely diverse range of people that um, utilize those, that space day and night um, for meeting, for learning, for um, sharing ideas. Um, sometimes there's even a bit of cooking. You've got exercise classes, um, crafts, art, yoga, pilates, computers yeah, there's, a, there's a wide range of things that happen there it's incredibly low cost there is a small cost and it sort of depends on whether the use is for profit or not and we um work collaboratively with the school on, on running that mm -hmm. and i think also though it's it's a safe place to go you know sometimes um in fact very often probably at least once or twice a week 
um, I'll be there early in the morning or way too late at night and someone will come and knock on the door and say, oh, can I just use the loo? But I love that that's where they come to. They're, walk, they're going for a walk and they're like, oh, they won't mind, you know, and of course we don't. Um, but but it's kind of, um, I guess it's, it's that um, desire to um, provide a little home away from home, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, that's awesome. Um, but it's not just us, Steve, you know, I mean, I think one of the beautiful things about the Valley and, and what I hope is one of the good things about the Valley Project is that we're always trying to uffy others as well. So, for example, we've got the um, Northeast Valley Baptist Community Centre just literally a couple of doors down from us. And that's another space in our community where we see phenomenal support happening. A lot of what they do is around um, under fives, you know, um, whānau and, and, and small children, um, space programs and play groups, and they have the toy library there now as well. Um, but, but anybody doing different interesting things in our community, I guess well, the great advantage that we have at the Valley Project is we have things like the Valley Voice, where we can use that forum to um, highlight what's happening, to connect people, um, and really importantly, celebrate things, you know, like, um, I've recently taken over the editorship of the Valley Voice um, and basically my role is 99% local and 99% positive, you know, yeah. and, um, and you, that's kind of a rare thing in this world. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and um, that's why I feel it's so important to, to hang on to that and, and keep it that way. Um, it's been going for almost 30 years, I believe, and it's always been like that. Um, so there's got to be a reason that's lasted the song, hey? Yeah. Yeah. Well, awesome. And, and well done on taking that over because that must be a massive job in itself. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, and, of course, the timing wasn't ideal either. I sort of thought, oh, I'll, I'll get this March issue away and then I'll have a bit of time to, you know, find my feet and figure out some systems and learn how to use these programs. And next minute I was at home on my laptop <laughs> squinting with a very slow mouse and some terrible internet right. connection yeah. trying to put together a digital issue that ended up being four pages longer than usual because there was so <laughs> much to say <laughs> um and, and a horrible font so yeah the printer didn't break down <laughs> now that is one great thing <laughs> oh uh, printer woes <laughs> if you're listening ceo of canon just Please release me. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you mention Kai Share? No, no, I didn't. Um, Kai Share is actually one of the incredibly important things. And to be honest, probably why I didn't mention it is it's, um, it's like uh, waking up in the morning for us, Kai Share. So what it is, is um, it's a food sharing program. It's run entirely by volunteers and it's not based on um, any kind of prescribed need, um, if you will. I mean, I, I guess one of the things I learnt um, very quickly when I worked at the Curtin Bank is how critical it is, I believe, to not pay, make, not force people into having to prove a need. Um, what I saw was a lot of agencies from WINS to whoever mm -hmm. um, having these, these criteria that people had to fit in and these people who 
have had a rough run or lost a job or had a breakup or whatever's going on for them, having to march into one place after the other and tell their story over and over again, which is just so um, dehumanizing and so exhausting and so unnecessary in my opinion. Um, and that's one of the things I think is beautiful about Kai Share is, is people come and say they need some Kai and we say, awesome let's get you some kai you know and that's that um so we're really really fortunate um we have a lovely woman called kerry who runs kai share and it's done in conjunction with an organization called kiwi harvest who rescue food um, from large supermarkets and restaurants and growers as well um so we're very fortunate to receive um, a load of kai from them once a week and alongside do some donations from the community, sometimes um, from the community gardens, often from people's gardens. Um, a group of volunteers come together once a week and divvy that food up and, and it goes out to between sort of 25 and 30 families every week, um, which may not sound like a huge number, um, but that's still a hundred plus people who have got some healthy meals available to them where they may not have otherwise, mm. but it's more than that too, because it's connection. It's, it's run by those people. You know, it, it's not a lining up for a food bank situation. It's, it's, um, it's much more empowering than that. I think about um, some of the people that have come and gone, you know, and, and what it's meant to them. Um, we had a former refugee family who were recipients and, the value that was held by the father and that family of being part of something to be able to go out into the world and say, I volunteer at the Valley Project. Mm -hmm. That sense of community where it began because of a need for his family, but that's not the end of it. You know, mm -hmm. it's just, it's not even much of a beginning. It, it's just an entry point. Um, yeah. I, I, do, I do see that there'll be space or a place to um, do more of that. I, yeah. I can see coming up that we've got some real challenges ahead, um, but at least we've got a really awesome template to work from. Yeah. I was just uh, picking up on, on two of the words you used. One was, was needs-based. You know, a lot of the services offer the, uh, people having to prove their need. Mm. And, and it's like they're having to identify themselves based on their need or based on their, their sense of disempowerment and powerlessness. And you, mm. you've used the type of development you're using as, as, as assets. Um, That's it. Identifying yeah. assets and, and identifying themselves according to their assets. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I can imagine that must be very empowering. Yeah. And I mean, you know, and I guess the thing is that there's just, there's no one prescription that's going to... Um, suit everybody but I do think that that's the beauty of of really maintaining that community-led sense that yeah. people are supported to to identify their own challenges and aspirations um there, there's no point you know I've told you a bunch of crazy stuff about some of the things of my life and so that's created my strengths and my challenges and my perceptions um, but I'd like to think that through the process of doing this kind of work, I've really learned how to help others identify them and, and just really realize that it's different for everyone. Um, yeah. Nice. So, um, Crush the Cargo raised a, a bucket load of cash for you. 
Aye, aye. And it's a funny thing. So um, I was thinking about this this morning, Steve. So um, not last year, but the year before, um, Crash the Cargo raised a bucket load of money for us. And we invested that into our annual celebration of the Creek, Creek Fest. Yeah. Um, and it's actually, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to moan, but seeking funding is a very debilitating experience sometimes um it can feel need. <laughs> exactly and you can feel like you're you're putting all this thought and passion and stuff and it just sort of goes out into the ether and you never not quite know what's going to come back but what you do know is it's never going to be quite enough unfortunately yeah. and and that's just because it's a very competitive environment um there's a lot of people that want to do a lot of cool things um, so for us having to crush the cargo money, even on a personal level for me, it actually made the experience of organizing that festival so much more positive. It meant that we weren't proving a need. It meant that we weren't um, stretching all the time. It meant that we could order some pizza for these people that work all bloody day putting up fences and tents and chairs and tables and you know like it it um it gives you that a bit of freedom and it means that um your your event isn't at risk into the future either um it, it means that you're not going to end up with a deficit at the end of the day that makes you go oh ah is this realistic um it just it really opens it up and and it also means you know the things like you can pay some artists that are playing on the stage um which is absolutely what they deserve i mean they still aren't paid anything like what i'm sure they would in the commercial setting but nonetheless um money's not everything but having a little bit of money so that you can actually distribute it in a in a fair way um to respond to some of the mahi that people do um yeah. and also to just cover off things that are safe you know yeah. this year we um, were able to hire a generator which made an enormous difference to the safety of the event yeah. um so you know it's it's it's, it's um, sometimes just little things but they make a really big difference to how people feel yeah yeah so our next crush the cargo event is um just over a month, actually. Six weeks. Oh, my goodness, that's come around fast. That's longest, the longest, shortest night, is it? Longest, shortest day. Um, oh. night, shortest day. But it was called a longest, shortest day. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, and it looks like it's quite a few people keen on doing that, the suckers. Um, <laughs> what about you, Steve? Oh, I don't know. I probably will. It's, it's like the worst event you could ever do. It's horrible. Did you tune up last year? Yeah, 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 yeah. Very briefly, though. Yeah, I, <laughs> I wasn't, you know, marching like up the, the hill sun, or anything. Yeah. The, sun, <laughs> the sun gets into Bethune's Gully for half an hour at that time of year. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. Um, that place feels like it's soaked through to the bone sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But at least we can truly say it's uh, one of the toughest events in the country. Um, so tough that we really don't want to do it. So if no one turns up, that would be great. But we do want to raise some koha. So um, Aye. <laughs> we we have um we're gonna put the funds towards um food boxes. Awesome. That's very yeah. cool. Do you wanna tell us more about what that's gonna be used how that's gonna be used? Do you know? Uh what do you mean? Sorry, this is um with the um Valley Community Pantry stuff? Yes. 
Yes, yeah, yeah. So um, I'm really, really sorry. I've just very momentarily forgotten the man's name. But um, yeah. one of the things that we um, did over the last year was um, with the assistance. Um, yeah, so one of the things we did with, the, with um, assistance from Bunnings and also the phenomenal folks at the North Dunedin Shed, who are amazing, can I just yeah. say that a couple of times, um, we've, we've built a community pantry. And again, it's around that idea of um, being able to give and take without criteria. So what we did is, is we've built it, and the idea is it's sort of a harvest share um, initially. So the idea, if, if you have some spare um, kai from your garden you can leave it there and take it there so it's not necessarily just about people who can't afford food but it's actually more about sharing and, and seeing what can be grown in your area and what might be available or if someone's moving house and they've got that cupboard of canned goods they're probably not going to get around to eating or just can't be bothered moving um, that it can go somewhere else so I guess it's sustainability it's a bit of food resilience it's um, another little bumping space and we were very um, fortunate to be approached by a man who um, yeah. loved the Nick that's right Nick um, and he's worked with Charlotte to, to come up with um, some sort of food boxes and it's around um, Kai for people, it's around healthy food, um, and for him, it's also around plant based stuff. Um, but alongside that, he's really eager to actually have a bit of a library going with um, some books as well. So, um, books around what you know, different types of kai that you can make. Um, and I'm pretty eager to get some stuff in there around um, what grows well and um, and planting calendars and, and seed sharing and that kind of stuff as well. So it's um, pretty amazing. This is um, an individual who doesn't actually live in our community, yeah. but he's connected with us. He's seen common ground, I suppose. Um, he's um, been doing similar things in South Dunedin as well. Um, and has just, you know, found this drive, this, this internal motivation to want to help to feed people. And I really think that that is so... Um, it's such a deep nurturing kind of thing to do. Um, yeah. And I think it's really beautiful. And to be able to raise some money so that that um, is easier to facilitate um, is really, really awesome as well. Cool. Yeah, well, that's what our cash is going to go into this year. So, uh, uh, awesome. I love that. Into the Give a Little page when I set it up, probably later today. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, you got an okay, did you, in the end? I haven't tried again yet. Okay, sweet. <laughs> Steve and I have this constant thing of what the hell was that password again? <laughs> yeah. So it's um, a problem if it's only every six months. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned the current situation briefly before. How's how's mm. things changed in the valley? Have you like in terms of connection, it makes it pretty hard to have um, social connection when we're all supposed to say stay. Distant. I know. Yeah, it's really interesting actually because um, a lot of the work for me over the last few weeks has been a lot of listening and, and talking with lots of different people all mm. over the city, yeah. and um, it's. I think you know I'm just very conscious that I feel like I have a sense of where people are at, but to be fair, the majority of that sense has come from Facebook you know um so it's it's sort of um it's it's not the best litmus test but um overall the thing that i think i've really noticed is just the way in which concepts that really were quite foreign to some people a month ago 
are now blatantly obvious. And that is around having a sense of community, knowing yeah. your neighbors, sharing your skills and knowledge and your resources. Um, the importance of food resiliency and local food, you know, it's just been a big aha moment for so many people. But I think the thing that I've really seen the most, um, the strongest, is actually this idea of caring about our local economy. Um, we kind of have this wee in joke at the moment that local is the NEV black, you know. Um, people were already supportive of our local businesses, but now they're cheerleaders, you know. Um, and whether or not I completely agree with everybody rushing out to buy their coffee from wherever, um, just on my walks and on my drives, the num you know, the sheer number of people out there wanting to spend their money locally. But it's not just that as well, it's the chat on Facebook and it's it's that people are taking the time or that small opportunity to to send a message, to tell I don't know, Christopher at Black's Road, we appreciate you. We, I love coming to your cafe. I miss it. I look forward to being back. Thank you for what you do. Yeah. Um, and I mean, to be fair, I think I've been very um, lucky and grateful to have a lot of those messages come towards us as well. But um, just before we locked down, Charlotte and I went for a walk and we um, popped into just about, well, you know, all of the businesses that were open at the time, um, just to have a wee chat. And um, it was really amazing. Some people were scared, you know, this is people's livelihoods. Um, a lot of these businesses, they're not money makers, they're, you know, what you do to get by. Um, some people were scared, but I thought it was also really a phenomenal how many people said, we'll be all right. People will support us when, we, when it comes back online, you know? Mm. Um, so I think that's been pretty cool too. And it's something that's been of interest in um, one of those kind of themes for the Valley Project that we've never been quite sure how exactly, we're, if we're nailing it or what exactly support is the right kind of support and of course trying to get local business people involved in yet another committee is not always easy either <laughs> but um but the um the dialogue has opened up an awful lot more um and and i think I've, that's um quite a general thing as well people are talking a lot more people are saying how they feel i put a we started a, a facebook group um at the beginning of the lockdown as a sort of community group to chat with one another and keep in touch with people. And it's got about 500 members in it. I put a wee note up there last night, just in you know, all it said was how, how people feeling about level two and just one after the other, the comments and, and people being really honest with others and with themselves saying, no, I feel absolutely relieved that my kid's going to go to school again but I also feel terrified about this that and the other or or whatever I think that there is a, a new openness um a new it's almost like by having some of that social connection taken away it's made it more important and special to people mm. 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 but I think we've got hard roads ahead Steve I think um we were very conscious not to fly into doing too much during the lockdown. We wanted to give space to civil defense and, and the bigger agencies that actually get funded for that kind of thing and, and have a larger staff. And, you know, I was very conscious of not burning out our couple of staff either. Mm -hmm. um, but we also always knew that 
our place is in empowerment um, and in development. And I think the next couple of years are, are going to be quite rocky for a lot of people. And I think it's going to put new added pressure on, on what we do and how we do it. Um, one of the things I think is going to be really important is conversations around mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of, it sort of made me realize that um, in my mind, it was a bit of a given, but then I thought, how often do, are we talking about this? When do we ever have stories about mental health in the Valley Voice or, or, or what have we activated in that space for the community? Um, I'm very fortunate at social work intern from last year is um, doing his final year master's this year and um, had a wee project to do and is very kindly going to go and do some research around what some kind of community-based mental health um, group type stuff we could maybe facilitate and support for people. Um, And I think our local economy too is going to have challenges. Um, yeah, I don't think it's going to be an easy time, but I'm so, so grateful that at least we've got we've got something to begin with. You know, yeah. there will be communities out there that have very little to kick off anything like that. And at least we've kind of got a framework and we've got um, a reputation. We've got awesome, awesome, awesome people on our governance board and in our staff and in our community. Um, so I'm trying to trying to see the positive side too but it's going to be an interesting road hey yeah so two two things that made me think of is, is probably a good time to mention valley counseling eh? yes 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 actually um wendy's someone that i um have been wanting to get in touch with around this as well we're really lucky um the valley project was able to use a little bit of um money that we had to support um, Wendy Allen to establish the Valley Counselling Service. And so what that is, is a counselling service that is offered um, at a a very low cost um, with a professional counsellor from the community room. So it's very community based. It's not 100% the most private spot in the world, um, but it is a place where you can come and be treated with dignity and and great respect with a um, skilled practitioner. Um, And the fees are based on on an income type of scale. Um, And we we pay a tiny, tiny part of that, which is basically just wanting to to support Wendy and that um, mahi that she's doing um, and help to cover, cover a little bit of the overhead costs that are related to it. Yeah, she's um, a good person. Yeah, she no, she's pretty cool. <laughs> I think. Um, I think. Oh, I don't. I, don't, I mean, every, we're a diverse community, but I do feel like Wendy. If you, if I conjured up in my mind who might be the person offering low cost community based counselling, Wendy is the picture I'd come up with. Um, nice. in my mind, you know, nice. like like she's a good fit. She's a really good fit. Yeah. I'll tell her that she just happens to be in the next room. Okay. Oh, excellent. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh why would that be? <laughs> hey, um, the other thing that came up as you were talking before about the reputation and um, the national recognition that the um, Valley Project's received. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yes, sure. So um, <clears throat> the project was, um, well, did a lot of hard work and was fortunate to be selected um, as part of a pilot program of community-led development through the Department of Internal Affairs. And gosh, how long ago is that now? 
uh, was must be seven-ish years ago, no. maybe a little longer. It was at least a couple of years no. before he came on board. So yeah, nine years, I think. Nine I think years. it wound up in 2016, maybe, and it was for a five-year period before yeah, that. So yeah, yeah, it's, it is quite a while now. Yeah. You know, time stopped in my brain when I came along in <laughs> this story. Um, and so what, what that looked like was um, a, a really quite phenomenal process um from 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 the perspective of of bureaucracy you know trying something new and different and recognizing internationally the um success of um community-led development um it involved five years of um significant funding that meant that the organization didn't need to seek funding from elsewhere um and uh, involved setting up the community room so um renovating the, the, the building, moving the buildings, um, setting them up to make them fit for purpose, um, covering staff, establishing projects, a lot of work done in consultation with the community to try and um, draw out some of those challenges and aspirations, which are still relevant now. Um, so I think they did a very good job because every time we go back to the community, the same kinds of themes keep coming up. And I don't think that's because we haven't achieved anything. I think that's because we kind of nailed what the things were and now we're just seeing the, the progress. Um, a lot of it in the beginning came also out of um, a desire from some of the local schools to have um, greater influence on what was happening outside the school gates, um, knowing about issues around housing and health and you know, the impact of housing on health, um, transients in the community. Um, and I think it's not wholly because of the project, but the desirability, um, the livability and the security of the community has strengthened enormously over that period of time. The school role has almost doubled. Um, people want to stay here. Um, one of the things I grapple with all the time in my work is people just desperately looking for somewhere to live in the valley. It's scarce. It's hard to find a rental and it's really hard to buy a house because every time you, you know, every next weekend, the prices have gone up again. Yeah. Um, so that put the Valley Project in a really strong position to develop itself, get to know itself, figure out the what, the who, the why, the where, um, all of those things. I think the transition into being more independent financially in terms of that funding has been challenging. Um, I personally am of the opinion that we're in a bit of a dangerous space now um, in community type work where we conflate sustainability with complete financial independence, which I don't know is, is realistic ask on, on an organization. Um, you've got to prioritize, you know, yeah. um, but we, uh, yeah, I, I feel like I've said it over and over again, but gosh, we're lucky. <laughs> mm. So, last question. Um, Phew. <laughs> I, I suspect that your job isn't always easy, and um, like an arranged marriage. Um, so, how do you keep it going? Mm, good question. Um, there's a couple of things. One of the things is actually looking after myself, which I'm still learning how to do. Um, but someone that's helped me an awful lot with that is Megan Turnbull, who's a local um, psych 
co-analyst, I think. Um, and she was previously on our executive board and she provides free supervision for me on a monthly basis. And I've learned a huge amount from her. Um, my colleagues are incredible. Um, Charlotte has been with the Valley Project for many years um, and she holds a lot of history and calm and um, a very refreshingly honest perspective um, and she is very quick to call me out if she sees that I'm getting into frantic mode mm -hmm. um, and I, I really appreciate that. Likewise with our governance board but to be honest I mean yep it's really hard sometimes I work too hard and I get really stressed out especially when it's hard stuff when people are in trouble you know I, I find it hard not to wear my heart on my sleeve my boundaries aren't like those of a professional, well-honed social worker. Mm -hmm. But the joy that you get, you know, when you're wandering around at an event like Creekfest and you see someone's little toddler grooving out to a song or you see Tahu McKenzie pull something out of the creek and you see the delight of other people mm -hmm. or when you sit down and have a cup of tea with the knitting group on Tuesday afternoon and have a bicky and a chat, that just fills my cup big time hey I just love it I really really love it um so it's it's um and I guess that's why I say it's a job but it's kind of my life too it's um that it's pretty hard to draw a line where that starts and ends and that can be hard sometimes I do I'll know for next time I take any kind of annual leave I will be leaving North East Valley even just for a few days <laughs> um because I can't stand outside my house without stopping for a chat with somebody um yeah, you know people people know who you are coffee. Yeah, oh the is. supermarket I just avoid entirely I went down there at bloody seven o'clock this morning <laughs> um or I seen the hubby because he he um he's in his element with the social distancing it's like a dream come true for him <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, it is hard, Steve, you know, it's not all beautiful all the time, but, um, hitangata, you know, it's the people. Yeah. Mm. Oh, cool. oh, that reminds me, we must remind people in the show notes to look at the video. Oh yes. Good idea. Yeah. And, and jump on our Facebook page too. You know, we've got some cute wee videos on there and there's always stuff happening. Um, yeah. and I guess the other thing for anybody listening and might not be the primary audience, but one of the things that I'm really, really strong on is, is collaboration. Um, over the last year or so, I've, I've joined an organization called the Dunedin Community Builders and been, um, you know, make, playing a small part in that group. Um, and we've also established a place-based community group network um, who I was lucky enough to be selected to present our submission to the DCC annual plan hearings last week. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is the Valley Project's very lucky. We've been around for a, a while. We've got some really good assets. We've had some experience. And um, I'm so, so eager to share any learning, any resources, anything, you know. Um, if you don't ask, you don't get. And um, I just, yeah, I, I really want to be sure that we can support further community development in other communities. Of course, I love the Valley and I think it's the best place ever. But anywhere that people have a sense of belonging is a great place to be. And if we can help facilitate that or support that somewhere else, um, I think it's on us to do that, given how fortunate we've been in the past. Yeah. 
Oh, thanks heaps, Tess. Um, I, I just really appreciate the work that the Valley Project does since ever since I moved back to New Zealand seven years ago. And, um, and coming from a health background, I know that, you know, knowing your neighbours, connecting with people, being involved in green spaces, looking after the environment, all these things are actually good for our health as well as yes. the yeah. people that we're helping. In fact, just helping people is good for our well-being. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and it's really good to recognise all of that. You know, improving the health of some actually improves the health of all. <laughs> yep, yep, I totally agree. We're, we've got to be in it together, you know, yeah. like um, we've all got our own strengths and yeah. um, being united is so important. But also, Steve, like, <clears throat> I don't know if I emphasised it enough how incredibly grateful we are for the support of the crush the cargo and even on a personal level it cracks me up almost every second day i was um just trying to explain to someone about crush the cargo this morning and i was sort of saying oh you know and sometimes they put a lawnmower on their back and their eyes are kind of glazing over and they're going what is this woman on about you know but i was still cracking up to myself you know they might not have found it amusing but it's that it's it's um you know, the money is, is awesome. It's really awesome. Yeah. But just knowing that people are doing that because yeah. they want to support us, you know, it's really meaningful in an emotional sense as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, long may it last. And um, any time you need breakfast cooked up, just I'm your girl, hey? Awesome. <laughs> well, we'll need some on June the 20th. if you want. June to 20th. The, Lock the it in, buddy. The swamp that has uh, crushed uh, Bethune's Gully in the middle of winter. Uh, yeah, a bit of breakfast then would be awesome. Oh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. It might almost be porridge and stewed fruit, fruit styles. Oh, just make it really gluggy porridge. And maybe, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, five day just... stewed fruit. fruit yeah. <laughs> well, have you ever heard about the old porridge drawer? Apparently people, the Scots used to just have a drawer full of cooked porridge and you just cut a slice out in the morning. <laughs> Yeah, bring along a drawer. That'd be great. Bring Got that one from great grandma. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, Tess. I'll be cool. Thanks, Steve. See ya. No worries. See ya. <laughs>